Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. I'd like to start talking about the relationship between your biography and the larger cultural narrative of the Dharma in the West. Hmm. Because your story starts with formal training in Zen, and then as your practice goes through uh, years of being co-abbot at the San Francisco Zen Center, it also starts to spread out into the intersection of Buddhism and Judaism uh, Christianity, uh, technology, living in the Bay Area, and so on. And I think, on the one hand, while that's a fascinating biography, it also seems to be the cultural story about the Dharma you know, growing roots into Western soil, which is that the delivery system of the Dharma now is so diverse. It's not just people in robes or wearing uh, the Buddha's cloth um, teaching in front of a room who are nodding or bowing, doing formal practice, but it's really being delivered through hospitals and education system and now mainstream media. And I was wondering if you could just speak to what you see happening in um, uh, this sort of new delivery system. Mm. Yeah, well, it is an unprecedented time uh, the idea, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that all the Buddhisms that we have inherited from Asia are all uh, teachings and systems of practice rooted in feudalistic social systems. So that's got to influence, right, the teachings and the way they're delivered. But our system is anything but a feudalistic system. So um, the transmission of not only something that comes from such a, a, a time frame, but also across languages and cultures that are so different, makes the Buddhism that we're receiving a completely different thing than what, what it was then. And I think that the teachings themselves have a kind of restless seeking for a place in a society. Mm -hmm. And so they're going in every which way. You know, we're all in, like you say, you pointed out about my own biography, you know, nobody's life is just their life, right? Everybody's life is just an expression of place and time that we're living in. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, Buddhism like water flowing downstream is finding every little rivulet and crack that it can flow into. 
and just going there naturally without anybody figuring it out in advance. <clears throat> so it's going all over the place and it's very interesting and, and you know, I, I, I'm interested in a lot of things and so I've just responded to whatever was in the vicinity and these things all took place and uh, Dharma is going that way. And, and uh, yeah, we also need a new postmodern sense of religious practice. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so many people have been wounded by religion and they're allergic to religion in various ways for various reasons that they just are not able to take on anything that looks like you know, a religious mm -hmm. trapping. Mm -hmm. But they're interested in professional training and they're interested in opening their hearts and they're interested in their own mental health and they're interested in helping other people and so Buddhism answers all these needs mm -hmm. and provides a way for people to uh, increase their ease and their skill. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think it's kind of interesting, isn't it, mm -hmm. the way it's going all over the place. And, and, and we were talking the other day about my article some years ago in one of the Buddhist magazines about Plan B. Right. And that, and that uh, these things are not mutually exclusive. You know, the, the, the Buddhism as mindfulness or Buddhism as professional training, and this is not exclusive from more conventional forms of Buddhism. In fact, they need each other. Mm -hmm. I think they need each other. And they support each other. Mm -hmm. So that was my article about Plan B. You know, Plan A is regular Buddhism, Plan B is everything else, mm -hmm. and we need to do it all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting and creative yeah. moment uh, in our culture and in uh, the history of Buddhism. Yeah. Nowadays, as mindfulness becomes more and more popular, of course, last month it was on the cover of Time magazine, and it seems yeah. like that's just the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Um, it might even surpass yoga in its popularity <laughs> because of its, its acceptance in academia and, and in medicine. Um, sometimes when I hear people defining mindfulness as paying attention without judgment, there seems to be an association with mindfulness as strictly a practice of giving your attention to something. Mm -hmm. And when I look at people who've been practicing a long time, or I also look in my own life, the way I understand mindfulness is more as the uh, opening in my own heart to generosity, mm -hmm. uh, to forgiveness, mm -hmm. uh, to the feeling of being connected to something greater than just my little narrative and my own suffering. Yeah. And so, to me, I think of mindfulness as a religious experience. Mm -hmm. And I worry sometimes that because we're measuring meditators in fMRI machines all the time now, that we're reducing mindfulness to meaning just being able to pay attention to something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I wonder uh, if this is something that you, you've thought about or something you've noticed, mm -hmm. because again of this plan A and plan B, one foot in the door of traditional practice and one in mm -hmm. secular mm -hmm. society. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, it's, it's an important and interesting uh, issue to, to, to think about. Uh, I remember uh, years ago when I was living in the temple, uh, this amazing character showed up, uh, Raphael Paparinov, that's how I would say it. Yeah. He was a very proud Bulgarian guy. Uh -huh. And uh, so he was an older guy, right? He had been yeah. lived through World War II as a young man. Yeah. And he showed up at Green Gulch because he was a lifelong meditator. Mm -hmm. 
How did he become a lifelong meditator? Bulgaria, in the beginning of World War II, was on the Nazi side. And he was in the king's guards or something like that. He was an elite soldier. So the Nazis, who were, of course, aligned with the Japanese, trained their elite troops in Zen meditation mm -hmm. so that they could be more adept mm -hmm. at fighting mm -hmm. and killing without fear, mm -hmm. just like Zen was used in the samurai times. Right. With ka and kamikaze pilots. Kamikaze and so pilots, yeah. yeah. So this tells you that, yes, uh, meditation practice can be used for, uh, to make people better at mm -hmm. things that they shouldn't be doing in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it is a reasonable thing to be worried about. And the meditation in and of itself, just by itself, is not uh, any guarantee of you know, goodness and kindness and mercy in this world. So it's a reasonable thing to worry about. <coughs> However, uh, so meditation, mindfulness, taught with some guidance and some teaching and inspired in a certain direction, will lead, I think, naturally with that kind of guidance, mm -hmm. just as you described, toward, first of all, just paying attention, but the just paying attention with the right direction will lead you to opening the heart. Mm -hmm. Opening the heart will lead you to compassionate and ethical conduct. You mm -hmm. won't be able to feel comfortable and happy doing rotten things that hurt other people mm -hmm. if you go down that path. Yeah. So, uh, I'm actually pretty confident myself, so far, in the essential goodness and intelligence of the programs that I'm aware of so far out there for mindfulness. Now, I know a lot of people who teach mindfulness in corporate settings, in health settings, and pretty much all the people that I know that are doing that mm -hmm. are doing it with a sense of this kind of guidance that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, it, but, but the beginning is just pay attention, just get more effective at what mm -hmm. you're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, just be able to be more effective not only in your work life but also in your personal life so you can have better relationships and yeah. do better at work. That's the beginning because that's how you introduce people yeah. to the practice. That's yeah. how you get them to pay attention to it and motivate them to do mm -hmm. it. But then going down that road a certain amount, you begin to guide people to notice. But you will notice spontaneously if you're actually aware, mm -hmm. you will notice. Mm -hmm that it's painful to hurt other people, yeah. that it's painful to do unethical things. And then the mindfulness will inevitably lead you to what, the, in effect, is a religious or a spiritual path, regardless right. of whether it's Buddhist or in any kind of context of an organized religion. Mm -hmm. so, so when I say guidance, it's, it's, it's as if, I guess what I, what I should say more, more uh, precisely is that real mindfulness will get you there, to this place this point, this ethical, compassionate point. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness that is geared toward a certain kind of performance mm -hmm. and, and intentionally avoids mm -hmm. the ethical and compassionate side can lead down some bad pathways, like Raphael Paparino, although he wasn't a bad guy, I mean, he later yeah. changed. Yeah. Um, so, it, it does make a difference. How we, and, and, and there is, is the possibility that mindfulness can be used for uh, making you more effective at, at being a rotten mm -hmm. person doing bad things. So that's something to, be, to pay attention to. But, but right now, uh, 
all mindfulness movements and all, all the research, even, I mean, don't tell anybody in the scientific community, but the truth is that all the researchers are Buddhist practitioners mm -hmm. and are motivated by their Buddhist practice yeah. to do the research that they're doing. That's why they're doing it. They're, tr they're doing it explicitly to make a case yeah. for meditation in the culture. And now, down at Stanford, there's the Compassion Project. Mm -hmm. and, and this is now, Compassion itself is becoming the successor, really, mm -hmm. to mindfulness or the, or the, um, uh, the entrainment, which means trained to, to mindfulness mm -hmm. as an adjunct to it, uh, so that these things are all becoming one thing. Mm -hmm. the, the health benefits of compassion, the effectiveness of compassion, and all that is now part of the equation. So, so, so then how do you define mindfulness? When you define it, uh, when you you, yeah. you know, so for example, uh, I heard John Kabat-Zinn speaking recently, saying mindfulness is a placeholder for the entirety of the Buddha's teachings, uh -huh. and that surprised me uh -huh. um, because usually you don't hear it articulated like that among the scientists. Yeah, um, yeah. but when you're teaching, uh, how, how do you define mindfulness? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, probably uh, that's new for John. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing mm -hmm. that in his early books, he yeah. did have a he did have a very good working definition of it, which had to do with I think it was something like paying attention on non-judgmentally on, on purpose, purpose, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, he wouldn't have said that early, but yeah. now maybe he's saying yeah. because not, not, I think that reflects his, his you know like everybody he's in development yeah. and changing, and yeah. that probably reflects his uh, recognition that. That compassion uh, and ethical conduct yeah. is inevitably part of mindfulness if mindfulness is really developed fully. Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, in my uh, thinking and, and uh, practicing and, and sharing Buddhism with other people, mindfulness is not uh, something a term that I use that much. Right. Mostly, I'm talking about presence, yeah. uh, like presence and uh, full engagement with life in this moment. Yeah. Um, and that's how I would view mindfulness. Presence and full engagement with life in this moment, which inevitably does involve uh, one's feelings, emotions, one's relationships with other people, and one's uh, conduct in ethical life. You know, as you know, in Soto Zen, precepts are at the heart of our practice. And precepts are not viewed just as ethical guidelines, do's and don'ts of conduct, they're viewed as enlightenment itself, you know, awakening itself, being present in this human life as it really is, involves our loving connection to other people, which involves our wanting to help and not hurt, our wanting to uh, take care of our conduct so that we don't do harm to other people, and, and so on and so on. So I think that's, to me, all of that, I would agree with John if he says yeah. it's a placeholder for all the Buddhist teachings, I think yeah. that's right. So, sometimes people are in such tremendous pain that they don't have the faith or the confidence that they can bring this kind of intimate engagement of you know this this meeting point of their body yeah. and what they're actually feeling and. Um, uh, there are long-time practitioners who sometimes turn away from practice because the pain is just so heavy. Mm. And then there are some people who um, uh, are so terrified by this kind of uh, uh, woundedness that seems to just go on and on and on and on mm. in their life. Mm. 
what brings people who are deeply in pain um, to the point where they can say, yes, I'm actually going to be intimate with this energy? Mm. Well, I think it's support of others. Mm. Nobody can do this on their own. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was living in, in the residential community of Zen Center, I used to always feel that there was a healing power in just being in the community. Mm -hmm. So we would sometimes get, you know, really disturbed people showing up. Yeah. And we were not able to really do anything. We, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't have therapists on staff or yeah. we didn't have, people had to just do the schedule and do the work yeah. and, and do the practice yeah. and that was all we could offer them. And, and um, it often wasn't enough to, for, for them to heal. But what we could offer them in addition to all that was just the feeling of being in a community where people accepted and understood the condition that they were in. Maybe they didn't know how to heal them. But they understood that this was a condition that human beings can be in. It was not something shameful. It was not something horrible. And there was a kind of loving recognition of this and support in that, you know, in the community. So you can't separate the community support from one's personal practice. Yeah, that's they, right. And, and, I think that, and I think part of the pain and part of the reason why we suffer on and on and on is our sense of isolation and our loneliness. I think if you have the feeling that you are supported, and that you are known by others who do understand and do care, that's 50% of your healing. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I mean, therapy, I think, is effective because in the end, you feel like your therapist knows you and cares about mm -hmm. you and loves you in some way, you know, mm -hmm. supports you. Mm -hmm. And it's that that promotes, the, I think, as much as whatever skillful therapeutic interventions there are, mm -hmm. it's the fact that a therapist you know, supports you and cares mm -hmm. about you, that's 50% of the healing. Yeah. And if you, you can be, and, and in the world at large, people are so scared and confused by mm -hmm. human pain that you don't get that feeling from, you know, the average human community. Yeah, yeah. you know, at the end of his life, Freud, when he was living in London, he wrote a paper about uh, um, narcissism. Mm -hmm. And in the paper, which is often not read, um, he says that what's healing is not clever interpretations or the understanding of the transference or counter projection mm -hmm. in relationship. What's healing is just relationship. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that would bring people to a place where they could bear their unhappiness. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just take that first part, or that, that second part, which is, you know, is the goal of therapy really just to bear mm -hmm. one's unhappiness? Mm -hmm. Isn't it uh, joy, you know? Mm -hmm. But actually, the more that I practice, <laughs> the more I really see these two things connected. Yeah. The ability to be open to relationship and how it unfolds and allowing it to hold you. Mm -hmm. Relationship to anything that goes on for a, a number of years. Mm -hmm. And also the ability to really be in one's unhappiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... Um, I think that what we mean by pain or unhappiness in the end really is the isolation and the loneliness. Mm -hmm. If we feel involved in, held by, embraced by relationship, then in bearing our unhappiness we can have some happiness. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's, the, it's, it's exactly our not wanting to face our unhappiness and our feeling isolated in it that is the actual unhappiness yeah. because 
it's normal to be unhappy. Mm -hmm. you know I mean, it's mm -hmm. normal to be, I mean, uh, to me, if I hear somebody saying that they're in despair or they're depressed or they're unhappy you know, in their lives or worried about the state of the world, I always feel, well, well that's normal, that makes sense. Yeah. Not to see those things and feel them from time to time seems to me quite unhealthy. Yeah. For somebody to be chipper and joyful seems like, well, what's wrong with him? You know? yeah. <laughs> because that doesn't make sense. Yeah. People are dying, people are suffering. How could yeah. you not care? How could you not be upset? Yeah. Look at the condition of our societies and yeah. so on and so on. So, to, but, but to be able, but to know that you're connected to others and to know that these kinds of moments of unhappiness are normal and are bearable and are even beautiful, because what are they if not the index of our caring, mm. right? If I'm unhappy and brought down by your suffering, it means that I care about you. Mm. So I might be, you know, in a glum mood because I'm c contemplating your suffering, but I'm happy mm -hmm. that I care enough to be in a glum mood over your suffering. So actually, there's a paradox yeah. there. Yeah. And, and happiness is not, you know, clicking one's heels and j dancing around all the time. Yeah. Happiness is caring and seeing yeah. our lives. That, to me, that's what makes us really happy. That's a beautiful definition of happiness because there's something about the way happiness is being used nowadays that I get a yeah. little uncomfortable with because, you know, a century ago, just after Victorian <clears throat> times, the thing a lot of people suffered from, especially women, was uh, being told they should always be good. Yeah, it was like yeah, the yeah. oppressive mantra yeah. is that you should be good. Yeah, uh, I mean we can just look at our parents or grand grandmothers, you know, and see yeah, this yeah. kind of pressure of needing to be good. And I feel the new mantra that's unconscious in the culture is that you should be happy. Right. It's like right. this carrot that's being dangled, and yeah, people yeah. are saying to themselves, "Well, maybe my unhappiness is not something to drop into. Maybe that's not the path." Because yeah, I'm yeah. supposed to be happy. Right, right. So I've been thinking more lately of happiness being the byproduct of practice yeah. rather than the goal of practice. The, the, the goal of one's spiritual life is freedom, yeah. which doesn't seem to be dependent on a feeling, right. happy or unhappy. That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you want to be able to, be, to appreciate fully yeah. and be able to make use of for the unfolding of your life, whatever it is that's going on in your life now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, there's, and there's no uh, restriction mm -hmm. on what that could be or should be. Mm -hmm. I, the way I understand the teachings on the afflictive emotions is that they all basically source from the, the inability or the, the, the lack of, the, a lack of uh, vision to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So. To do what exactly? To be able to embrace whatever it is that's going on in your life as the path. Right. So, uh, so feelings like uh, compassion, sorrow, are not afflictive emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, hatred, anger, greed, those are afflictive mm -hmm. emotions and, they all, and I think they all source from our inability to connect and accept our human condition. So in a way you could say the main problem with 
afflictive emotions is that they obscure the path. Yeah, yeah, they obscure that's right. your life. Afflictive emotions are all efforts to distract ourselves or, or remove ourselves from the fact of life. Mm -hmm. The fact of life, I think, is always healing, even when it's difficult. Even mm -hmm. when it's an unhappy moment, there's a healing in mm -hmm. really being in your life. Mm -hmm. And I think all the afflictive emotions are about, are really, the, the, the root of them is ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. I can't and won't be in my life. I've got to find another energy to spin me off into another direction. Mm -hmm. So I'll be envious, I'll be greedy, mm -hmm. I'll be angry, I'll mm -hmm. be hateful. Mm -hmm. And that's not, we're missing the moment of our lives mm -hmm. when we're, all those emotions are exactly about bouncing us off from where we are. Yeah. So yeah, it's not about feeling good. Mm -hmm. Because feeling good doesn't go very far. When, you know, when we're sick and dying, we're not going to be feeling good. You know? mm -hmm. And practice doesn't end when that becomes the case. Yeah. Practice deepens and and broadens when, when that's the case. Yeah. So it includes all of that, I think. When I was in Japan, I met a priest who was also a fabulous potter. And mm. uh, one day uh, he said to me, uh, you live in America. And I said, no, actually I live in Canada. Mm. <laughs> and he said, uh, the future of Zen is in America. Mm -hmm. But not the spirit. Hmm. And so I said to him, well, what's the spirit of practice? Mm -hmm. And he said, modesty. Hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. What's your take on yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it's interesting yeah. when we're talking about Buddhist practice coming alive in our culture uh -huh. and everybody using it to pay attention uh -huh. or to be more present at work. Uh -huh. Uh, the, the spirit of the practice that I really felt in Japan was this combination of modesty and warmth. Yeah. Even in the most formal monasteries, yeah. there was something really warm in a sense that you were with family. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's wonderful that you uh, mm -hmm. were able to feel that because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people who go to Japan and, and experience Buddhism there don't feel that. Mm -hmm. But I think that that is, I, th I agree with you, I felt that also mm -hmm. in Japan. And I do feel like that is the essence of Japanese Buddhism, is, is modesty, humility. I, would, mm -hmm. I use the word humility. Yeah. Humility and warmth. That's yeah. right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I guess maybe what that priest was commenting on was the, uh, the uh, overly uh, enthusiastic, bordering on arrogant uh, American approach to almost anything, yeah. <laughs> you know, including uh, Buddhism. So I agree with him, I, although I, I wouldn't say that that spirit uh, of modesty or humility isn't uh, in uh, American Zen uh, or Canadian Zen. Uh, certainly it is in the places where I practice, mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I think it will become, as, it, as the practice matures, mm -hmm. it be is becoming more and more the case. I always say, you know, when I ordain priests, I always tell them there are three practices for a priest, but actually it's three practices for everybody. But when you're a priest, it's very explicit. The first practice is see everybody as Buddha. Every single person that you meet, you should understand that person is the Buddha, there to inspire you and teach you. Uh, second, help everybody. Do whatever you can to help all the time. And third, be humble. Because mm -hmm. I do feel yeah. like this sense of humility uh, in relation to one's own life and, and abilities is essential. 
yeah. to the practice, yeah. to any spiritual path. Mm. So um, I agree with uh, the, 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 this priest. Um, Suzuki Roshi, um, our founder of our temples in, in San Francisco, um, he always had the dream that eventually the spirit that he was trying to uh, share in America would go back to Japan. Mm-hmm. So he thought that bringing Buddhism to America was the best thing that he could do for Japanese <laughs> culture and Japanese yeah. Buddhism because he felt yeah. like it would only it would only come around when it came from somewhere else to back to Japan because yeah, yeah. the Buddhist like genes or something. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> because the Buddhist establishment there is so fixed. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's hard yeah. to, in and of itself, it's hard to move it. Yeah. But when influences come from outside, they they, yeah. there's a, they have a freedom right. of movement. Yeah. You know, like when I go to Japan, I can really be myself. I don't yeah. have to be yeah. part of their mindset. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a beautiful. That, that's mm. a very wise mm. uh, feeling. Yeah. Yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, my teacher. Is a wonderful person and I just was uh, he wrote a wonderful recently in the newsletter of his center uh, he wrote a wonderful poem uh, that he gave he gives every year a poem on the memorial day of his teacher who was Suzuki Roshi oh. and I thought I read that it was so beautiful and I said I'm so happy that I don't have to have memorial services for my teacher oh because he's alive. Because he's alive. Yeah. yeah. And I'm lucky yeah. in that way, you know, at yeah. my age that my yeah. teacher can still be alive. Yeah. But <clears throat> once I really pissed him off, uh, I didn't mean to, but I pissed him off because I said, uh, in talking about him, I said, uh, well, he never taught me anything. Uh-huh. And that was the great thing. Uh-huh. He never taught me anything. That was the best thing. Yeah. He didn't like that, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, years later, he always remembered that I said that, and years later, he, uh, one time, uh, you know, you write calligraphy on the back of a rakasu, and he wrote on the back of a rakasu, I have nothing to give you but my Zen spirit. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought that was a beautiful thing. It's beautiful. And so this spirit that yeah. you're talking about, yeah. of Zen, the spirit of you know, presence and modesty and caring, and especially, just keep going, mm. not expecting too much from the practice, but just keep going yeah. forever and ever. Yeah. Uh, that spirit is a tremendous spirit, yeah. and, and I really and I really value it. And, and, and I think uh, the implication of what you quote is that a lot of American Buddhism looks like it's trying to make improvements. The newer, the newer, the better. Mm-hmm. You know, mindfulness will make it all better. And yeah. Zen will make this and that happen, you know, and, and I think it's, uh, that's not really quite right. Yeah. But we'll get there eventually. Yeah, uh, that touches on the last thing I wanted to, to talk mm-hmm. about, which is, when I was a younger man, mm-hmm. um, my interest was in Vipassana practice, mm-hmm. uh, doing long periods of sitting, and really looking at traditional maps. Mm-hmm. where I could access states of concentration where there wasn't much happening. Mm-hmm. Um, first noticing the arising of something, then the passing away, but then mm-hmm. the passing away of everything. Mm-hmm. And really going deep into those states of really experiencing everything as fleeting mm-hmm. and not having a, lar- a big charge around it. It mm-hmm. wasn't dramatic. Mm-hmm. 
And now, uh, 10 or 15 years later, I have two kids and I have a pretty large community and my interest just isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And not only is it not there anymore, I see it as a young man's uh, story. Mm -hmm. And I'm really touched by the spirit of practice where relationship is the core of practice. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, in fact, what's really needed now in our time is intimacy as the core practice. Mm -hmm. Whether that intimacy is happening with your own heart or it's happening with your baby mm -hmm. or your teenager mm -hmm. or um, people you don't get along with. It seems like uh, your teaching revolves completely around this point, mm -hmm. which is that, yes, there are maps. Yes, there are states of concentration. Um, uh, but the heart of the practice seems to be this message of engaged with every single moment. Mm -hmm. And in my own life, that's much harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, and, I, and I think that... Uh, that is ultimately the practice in, in Zen. With Zen's uh, view of Buddhism, it, it really does emphasize that, just as you say. <clears throat> but I also, you know, as a young man, spent a lot of time on the cushion and, and yeah. uh, a lot of intense time. So there certainly is a, a need for that yeah. and a place for that. I mean, that gave me some stability. Well, exactly. That, I mean, and, I, yeah. and a grounding, and, yeah, and exactly. a foundation, and yeah. a foundation. So yeah. I think that. Uh, I think that we may find, as we go along here, mm -hmm. that um, the majority of Buddhist practitioners in our culture who will benefit enormously from the practice and whose lives will be transformed by it mm -hmm. will not do that kind of intense practice that you and I did when we were young. Mm -hmm. But that intense practice will continue to be done by a minority of people and it will be an essential thing that that minority of people do that practice to keep it to keep that foundation firm and alive because I think the Buddhist practice that we all that the rest of us do does depend on that yeah and I remember uh, there's one famous teacher uh, Bankai who taught in Japan and he um, I forget what century he was in maybe the 18th century he would say, I remember uh, being really impressed by this, he would say, you don't have to, you guys don't have to do all this hard stuff. I sat till I had calluses on my butt. But you don't have to do that because I did it. Uh -huh. So now you don't have to do it. Yeah. So I think that's right. I think not everybody has to do it and we can get the benefit of the people who have done it. Yeah. Whether we get it directly from them like you, yeah. having done that now directly can communicate with other people or whether we get it indirectly through just the mass of the tradition itself, but someone needs to continue to do that. We can't, because I think if we lost that altogether, if no one ever did that kind of practice and we lost track of it, mm -hmm. we would lose the basic moorings of Buddha Dharma. Mm -hmm. But as long as someone's doing it, as long as it's offered, and as long as there are those who will maintain it, the vast majority of people, I think, can practice in uh, ways that are more doable for it most people, probably you as a young man who were a lunatic like me, you know, yeah. who would like would stop at nothing t yeah. to, in order to do this. Yeah. And, and that's not everybody. Yeah. It's not possible for everybody. And no, not everybody has that spirit yeah. and that need. Yeah. You know, so, but it's good that you did it. Yeah, it's well, you know, I, my, I mean, my life was, in a way, 
I say I said at the time that I just wanted to be free mm-hmm. and that if this practice really promised enlightenment I wanted that yeah right in retrospect I also see the inability to really be related yeah right yeah right we were those of us who had that mania mm-hmm. had issues going on we didn't even know we had yeah right yeah right but listen this is this is old uncle buddha <laughs> manipulating us to get us to do what needs to be done yeah and so we can't complain yeah <laughs> right yeah thank you very much thank you thank you